You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Bruckner Chase. He just swam across the Monterey Bay. Thank you for joining me, Bruckner. Yeah, thank you. I was relieved that I got to drive here today as opposed to swim from Santa Cruz. (laughs) I guess it's a lot, well, maybe somewhat easier. Yeah, a little bit, you know, but if you look at the stats, uh, it was probably safer, uh, was safer swimming as opposed to the traffic on Highway 1, but a little bit easier and took a little bit less time, which was nice. Now, tell us how you got into um, this field of swimming in the open ocean. That's something that most people just would never even consider. Why, why did it, what drew you to this? You know, I, I think what really drew me to the ocean came later. I, I started at a very young age pursuing some endurance pursuits. Uh, did my first Ironman distance triathlon when I was 19, moved on and did some ultra distance running in my late 20s, early 30s. And when I moved to Santa Cruz, California and looked out at Monterey Bay for the first time, I was fascinated. And like many people that look out at that cold, dark water with kelp and wildlife, you know, at first it was a little bit of fear. And I, as a triathlete, I, I had experience swimming in the open water and met an incredible open water community here in Santa Cruz and and slowly started spending more and more time out there and found that every time I went into the ocean, I discovered something new about the ocean, which usually ended up showing me something new about myself. So in my mind, it was a, a pretty logical kind of growth to get more and more immersed in it. And the connection we all have with the ocean for me just became more intimate. Talk about, um, you know, when you said you described the ocean with kelp and, and the wildlife. I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff out there that most of us can't see and most of us can't experience. It's kind of like what you do is like plunging into the unexplored Amazon, only <laughs> it's not as easy because you have to swim. It is that. It's it's funny because they um, people ask me, and I, I work with um, ocean lifeguards back on the east coast in the upper township in, in south jersey and i i tell these guys and in, in a lot of the adult summers we take out that a lot of times the scariest things in the ocean are the fears that we bring with us from land and it's been a good practice of mine to not watch shark week uh right before a big swim and <laughs> i guess not i you know once you get out there and realize and this was a, an epiphany for me because last year i attempted the swim and and was stopped after about 11 or 12 miles because of jellyfish and really realizing that you're a guest in this environment and starting to really kind of reconnect with the awe that you that I used to experience. I mean, the early days of the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau and, and some of the movies by some of the filmmakers that are here at Blue, I began to reconnect with that wonder and put aside the fear that had been created without the time in. And I think that what we'd really like to do with the swimming and sharing our connection there is let people know that there's some there's some things out there that from one perspective are scary, but from the other perspective are absolutely fascinating. And even though I saw jellyfish and was stung repeatedly for the 14 hours that we were out there, these are amazing creatures. I mean, I saw moon jellies as big as car tires. Uh, the crew had blue whales swim next to them. We had a pot of dolphins come up, which you know, can be 
intimidating at first, but once you just start looking at the wonder of it, that's, I think that's why we need the sanctuaries, why the, we need the Monterey Bay Aquarium to get a glimpse of what I got to see firsthand in person. You, you know, um, what you do is so interesting because it's literally by undertaking this enormous and dangerous and uh, interesting journey, you, you immerse yourself, but you, I think you also immerse us in this perception of, of the ocean that I think really gives us an idea of the scale because we spend all most of our lives on land, most of us do, and don't have an idea of the scale of what is out there. But when we think of you alone swimming across the Monterey Bay, it, starts to, it really starts to put things in perspective. It does, and I think for me, it, it you know, when we're when we're leaving the beach in Santa Cruz, and you think that um, we are heading for a point that at best is 25 miles across, and then you drift a little bit and it becomes 28. And unlike you know running on the roads, we've got 10-foot swells, so you're being knocked around and moved up and down and everything. And it, you cannot help but feel humbled and that you're very much, no matter how fast you are, whether you are Michael Phelps or the most accomplished marathon swimmer in the world, once you enter an ocean like that, you're a small fish in a very big pond, and it is awe-inspiring to be halfway across there and look down and realize that the bottom is 3,000 feet below you and the nearest land is 12 miles away. And I've read in some articles that have come out since the swim, people refer to conquering Monterey Bay, and it's one of those words that I would never use. I mean, I, I feel that when I step into that ocean, you pretty much surrender the training and, and the crew and the preparation to the ocean's going to give you what the ocean's going to give you. And it is immense and humbling every single time I go out. Well, this is such an amazing feat. And it seems it's not something that it's not like just uh, deciding to do some extra laps in the pool. Uh, <laughs> talk about the, how you prepare for this. I mean, it's not just uh, an athletic prepa- preparation, though that's clearly part of it. There's a lot of uh, got to be a lot of planning and, and forethought, technological uh, stuff you have to do as well. Yeah, the the logistics of this, I mean, I, I've competed as a triathlete, an ultra-distance runner, long-distance cyclist, and the logistics of the swims and, and pulling together a crew, and you'll hear a lot of people call it a, a solo marathon swim, and it is absolutely anything but. It is a community marathon swim, and I get so much strength from the community that might be right next to me. My wife, Michelle, has been with me on every marathon swim I've done, and I always talk about we. I, I just don't, rarely do I say I did this, I did that, because it's just so linked to me that this is a group thing. And coordinating all that becomes an immense task, especially swims that have not been done, you know, but a handful of times. Some places where you go, like the English Channel, it's kind of scripted. You've got the boat captain who knows everything. But, you know, we're looking at Monterey Bay, and, and one person did it 30 years ago, and kind of figuring out where do we need to leave from, how do we schedule this, and we still ended up in the worst jellyfish bloom I've ever seen in my life. And I train and prepare. There's a huge focus on logistics and calculating out feedings and what you take in and not. And normally, I adhere to, uh, I, I personally prefer not to swim in a wetsuit. And I've done swims in Alaska, and I've done swims in South Jersey, and water as cold as 38 degrees without a wetsuit. And that's always my first choice. Um, I, I liken it almost like to a mountain climber who chooses to swim without or chooses to climb without oxygen. And it allows me to kind of even more closely experience 
the ocean there. And so when you talk about physiological changes of your body needing to adapt to cold water in Monterey Bay, this time was somewhere between 57 to 61, depending on where you were. Um, there's a huge physical training component where you're training your muscles to go for hours on end. I take 70 strokes per minute over 14 hours. I couldn't begin to do the math in my head, but that's a lot of, it's <laughs> a lot of stress on my shoulders. And I, I'm 44 and I, I came to this late and I'm just grateful that my body seems to be holding up, but there's a, a huge physical training component. I train as I did when I was an athlete swimming up to 40 miles a week at a peak, almost all of it in the oceans off of South Jersey in ocean city. And there's that. And then just allowing my body to physiologically adapt to the cold and more important than anything else is kind of the mental preparation for this and knowing that I can prepare so much but still have to let go and be ready to deal with things I may not have foreseen. And making these swims is not necessarily about bravado or, or force of will. It's about trust and letting go. I have to trust in the community of support that I get around me, the, the community on the boats and the support that's there, that they're going to keep me safe, that they're going to look out for things, that they're going to feed me and keep me going. And it's very much a release and preparation. Marathon swimming, more than any other endurance sport I've ever done, is a mental acceptance of, you know, you're a guest in an environment and you need to be prepared for whatever might come up. Now, so give us an idea. You start out at four in the morning. That yeah. that's that's pretty early, <laughs> but I, I can understand that if you're going to have to swim for for uh, a long time, you don't want to be swimming at midnight. Um, ta- describe to us um, how you you just walk into the ocean and and how how did you pick your your points and, and how far how far apart were the two points you picked? It's every body of water, every marathon swim we do is is unique. Uh, to some degree. You've got swimmers who do the English Channel with a huge tidal flow. So the the course that they actually swim, depending on their speed, is almost like a sine wave. Mm -hmm. So to go the 21 miles across the English Channel, you might end up being drifted 30 miles um, because you've you've swum through two tide flows. In Monterey, what we decided was the, the winds, if they come up at all, come up later in the afternoon. Anyone who lives in this area knows, you know, noon or one, two o'clock, you're going to get wind and chop. But in the night or early, early morning, when the marine layer's there, it's calm and glassy. And that's what we were going for. And also knowing that as a marathon swimmer who's going to be out there for hours on end, typically there's a, a low point emotionally or physically after a couple hours or so. So by picking our start time of four, we take advantage of the calm conditions early on. We knock out some quick early miles in the dark, and then the sun comes up. And to take a breath to your right and look at the moonset over the Pacific, and a breath to your left and look at the sunrise over the mountains is inspiring alone, just to see that environment. And it's a great emotional lift. So you've, you've swum for two and a half or three hours at this point, which means you're seven and a half miles into it. The sun comes up. You can now see your crew. You can start making contact with with eyes and faces and the community around you. And that's a big plus. And then we also knew that even when the winds did come up, they were going to be prevailing from the back, from the northwest, so they would push us towards Monterey. And it's different swims, different conditions, different starting and finishing points. We picked these two points because 
Main Beach Santa Cruz is is Santa Cruz, and the two anchor points for Monterey Bay are, are really Santa Cruz and Monterey, and San Carlos Beach in Monterey is just down from Cannery Row. It that whole area has some historical significance with the Monterey Bay Aquarium right there. We were practically swimming past the aquarium, and the aquarium has been an incredible source of information and resources in helping us get ready for this. I, I hang out in their hallways with the jellyfish exhibits and the kelp forest <laughs> and the outer bay swimmers just fantasizing about being one of those. And to connect not only Main Beach, Santa Cruz, and the pier and, and the boardwalk with the aquarium and Cannery Row and then the Blue Ocean Film Festival, which is right here downtown, those points were as much inspiring for us as they were geographically perfect for the swim. Okay. You're not doing this alone. How many people are in your crew, and what, what exactly uh, does it consist of? I mean, our crew, it, it varies a little bit based on the swim, but for major swims like this where we're way offshore and in an environment that could change, absolutely, as, as though a lot of people look at this as they would mountain climbing and stuff, there's a danger element involved. Mm-hmm. And we have a very, very detailed um, emergency action plan we were under a permit with Sector San Francisco, the Coast Guard, so we take every step to make sure that things are safe. As much as we want people to get in and get involved, we know that we are a guest in an environment, we want to make it safe. And in this one, we had a crew of, of five. It included my wife, Michelle. It included a close friend of ours, Jason Pate, from Santa Cruz, who's an EMT. Also a rescue swimmer friend of mine uh, in the Coast Guard, Pat Roach, came down off-duty. Um, he has been a rescue swimmer for 12 years, and so I had an EMT, a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, and two ocean lifeguards from New Jersey who came out and joined us, Tony Mahalik and Casey McCaffrey. And I, 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 I surround myself with the best people I know who not only know what to do if something goes wrong, but they know me. And knowing how a swimmer may change during the course of an endurance event like this and when are they in trouble, when are they not, when do they need encouragement, or when do they need to be pulled out is really critical. What's the right thing to say to either keep them going or to make sure there is another time to do it again? You know, it never struck me when I heard about you doing this, but I guess you do have to eat. How do you you eat while you're swimming? That's that's not so easy, eh? No, it's not, and and uh, you you don't necessarily. Thankfully, while you're swimming out there, you don't have to just uh, eat what you catch. Um, <laughs> I uh, although actually technically I do. I feed every thirty minutes typically, and uh, my wife throws me a water bottle at the end of a rope, so I, I catch the water bottle. I have factored in that I need about three hundred and fifty to four hundred calories per hour. It's all pretty precise, and I eat a little bit of solid food at the top of the hour. Uh, usually, stuff that's pretty neutral but has a little bit of carbohydrate, or actually a lot of carbohydrate, a little bit of protein, because with 10-foot swells, there's a little bit of a nausea issue. And swallowing a little bit of salt water, I usually throw up at least once or twice. I try to minimize that as much as possible. But we eat, most of the stuff is liquid or gel, because Mm -hmm. unlike when you're running, you can eat a part of a power bar and, and run a quarter mile as you chew it and digest it. Swimming, you can't breathe and chew at the same time. So it's all Mm. stuff that you can either take one bite and swallow immediately or something that won't slow you down at all. Now, um, when you went out there, you encounter more than just waves. Talk about the the flora and fauna that you get to enjoy. Oh, yeah. Am I wrong? I see some 
maybe bumps on your neck that yes. look like a, the result of a yeah. uh, close encounter. I, I had, uh, I definitely, this would definitely qualify as a close encounter of the fourth kind with the uh, Chrysora and moon jellies. And, and the jellies, I will tell you, at this time of year, we, last year we, we did the swim and swam through schools of jellies for four hours. I got stung dozens and dozens of times. And what I've learned in research is that the Jellyfish stings are a cumulative effect. It's not like the last stings, like the first one. The toxins build up in your body, and the toxins from the jellyfish are designed to slowly immobilize prey to protect the jelly itself. And by sustaining so many stings over such a, a relatively short period of time, my body just began to shut down last year. This year, we started without a wetsuit and had intended to swim without a wetsuit because that's that's just my first choice. But we started encountering jellyfish within the first 30 minutes, and by the first hour, we were swimming in through schools of them. And the difficult part is, keep in mind, this was 5 in the morning, so mm -hmm. the only way I knew I was swimming through schools of jellies is I just kept feeling the pain. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch <laughs> black dark. So you're in the water, and you're getting stung, and even though we had logged on a lot of grease and thought that we were protected, getting them in the face and the arms, uh, my wife yelled down at me and said, you either get into the boat or get into a wetsuit. And since the whole purpose of this was this journey across the sanctuary and to connect people from Santa Cruz to Monterey and, and from the East Coast to West, somehow managed to pull on a wetsuit while still in the water and fortunately did not manage to get any jellyfish trapped inside the wetsuit as that I pulled it on. Seems Nor did I dislocate my shoulder trying to zip it in the back. But the, the wildlife we saw... I saw a jellyfish. Sometimes they were up on the surface. When it got choppier, they go deeper to protect themselves. For 28 miles, every stroke I took across Monterey Bay, I saw a jellyfish, <laughs> ranging in size from a tennis ball to the size of a car tire. We saw the Chrysura with bells as large as a couple of feet in diameter and tentacles as long as 8 to 10 feet. And I saw a jellyfish on every single stroke. Also saw seals that followed along for a while, saw pods of dolphins, saw blue whales, just, just the environment itself. I mean, just the, the ocean, the, you know, the Pacific and nothing out to the right. You know, you could see the, the mountains in the distance on the left and the mountains up ahead in Monterey. But the, the challenge, and I knew it would be, would be the jellies. This is the time of the year, and regretfully for me, they really bloomed in the last week. They were much, much lighter three weeks ago, and then all of a sudden it just took off. The last mile that we swam, the jellies were as thick as those. I've compared it to the, the playground little things that kids go into with the rooms filled with the small balls. The tennis, tennis balls. Yeah, the little tennis yeah. balls. Yeah. The jellies were that thick. Every stroke for the last mile, the beach is right there. I'm that close. And wetsuit or not, my, I had them in my mouth. I was stung all over my face, my hands, my feet absolutely on fire. And some of the sanctuary folks, Dan Basta and Bill Duras, and some of the aquarium folks, Hank Armstrong and Ed Cassano, were, were jumping in to swim the last mile. And they, were, they, they agreed with me. It was the worst jellyfish blooms they had ever seen, never seen them that dense. And I'll tell you what, I applaud those guys for standing there on the side of the boat, looking at that and jumping in. At least, you know, I, I, I didn't get to see it coming. They jumped right into that. And the minute you hit, it's just like being on fire. Now, um, having, having completed this, uh, 
you know, you emerge onto to Monterey, and there, there really is that sense of connection, I think, with both the ocean and, you know, the other side and, and the other coast. And I, and I want you to talk about, you know, how this fits in with the Blue Festival, because I, I think that these kind of accomplishments, again, draw our attention to a part of the planet that we, by virtue, even when we look at it, we think it's kind of uninteresting, essentially. It's waves. After a while, waves lose their right. appeal. So talk about turning what looks like an uninteresting desert into something that's uh, a vital part of our lives. Well, I think what you just called it, it, what appears to be a desert, it's very much like that. The the life is, once you look below the surface, you know, you look at the kelp forest at the Monterey Bay Aquarium exhibit, and you walk the tide pools. I could not even begin. I, I'm surrounded by all these amazing scientists and researchers and people here at the sanctuary, and most of our planet is that ocean, and our very lives depend upon the health of that ocean. That ocean is breathing for us. It is taking in our carbon dioxide. It is producing our oxygen. It is producing our food biomass. And as I have spent more time there, I, I feel connected to it. It's, it's the environment in which I pursue these, these physical endurance events and being inspired by all the people around here and learning that it is not just when I'm in the water swimming that I'm connected to it. it. It is every choice I make during my day, whether I leave my car idling to run in to buy a paper or a cup of coffee and I, I release additional CO2, which ends up being absorbed by the, by the ocean and changing the pH, or whether I take that extra plastic bag at the grocery store and I end up double bagging and then that plastic bag ends up in the ocean then it ends up being broken down into smaller plastic pellets. Every choice we make from the food we choose, especially with the stuff going on at the Gulf and, and the hit that so many fisheries have taken there, we need to make choices that whether you are in Ohio or you are in California or New Jersey, the little things we do impact this environment and by swimming across it I am and connected intimately for that 14-hour period, and that's merely a very tangible story right there of the connection we all have all the time. And I think by connecting two cities across this body of water, we show that, yes, it looks like a long way away. It is a long look. It is way over the horizon to look at Monterey. But everybody swims. We swim across our country club pools. We swim across the lake. So by taking something that looks far away on the horizon, something that you almost don't need to even think about because it's, it's out of your view, but realizing that human effort and a human push can get out into it and then across it and connect the two points, I think is what's really important. I've been speaking with Bruckner Chase. He's the long-distance endurance swimmer who took what he thought would be a 25-mile journey, but I believe turned out to be a 28-mile journey. This is like the three-hour tour that Gilligan yeah, and his friends exactly. took across the Monterey Bay. Thank you for joining me, Bruckner. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.